Well, good morning. Good morning. Coming through? There I am. Uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, this is our second week looking at the Beatitudes. Uh, last week, if you recall, we kind of have a three-part dealio. We, we started last week by looking at the, the passage as a whole, and we kind of situated it where it belongs, right? The Beatitudes are this, this set of kind of prescriptions of Jesus in a way that you've maybe grown up with in the church your whole life, but we kind of looked at them in a, in a new light and how they fit with the, the Sermon on the Mount and in the book of Matthew as a whole. And the, the two kind of takeaways from last week, if you weren't here, are that the, the Beatitudes are really about the, the two A's, approval and authority, right? And so when we, when we look at the, the eight Beatitudes, they are ways that the Lord calls us to be. So blessed means approval, like when he says, blessed are you if you X, Y, Z, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirits. He's saying, living a life of God's approval are those who, right? And that's a blessing because when we live as God calls us to live, we're living as we're created to. We're kind of living into the fullness of creation. We experience the, the deepest level of freedom because we are who we're made to be. It's also that the Beatitudes are about God's authority, because they are not just prescriptions of how we are to act and be as Christians, but they are descriptions of how the world will work in God's new kingdom when it's fully established. And so in his kingdom, those who mourn are blessed. In his kingdom, those who are meek will inherit the earth, though we don't see that so often today. So there's things that are not fully realized or true about the Beatitudes, but those things are coming, right? If you remember, Max Lucado's quote was that when we, when we look at the Beatitudes, blessedness indicates kind of the applause of heaven. So when we live into what these Beatitudes are, there's, there's almost there's an applause in the heavens of how we are conducting ourselves. And as Christians, we're not legalistic. We don't believe that God loves us less when we fall short of his plan and his design. But we do want to line ourselves up. Like we do want to say, yeah, I want to act the way God calls me to. Right? As a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm saved, I'm redeemed. I experience the joy and the, the beauty of that salvation and redemption. And so I, I want to be able to live into that. And so we're, we're going to look this week today at the first four actual Beatitudes, and then next week we're going to dig into the final two. The, the first four that we, final, final four, sorry, I can't count. I could preach, but I can't count. The, the first four uh, Beatitudes, they split beautifully. They are designed to be all about the vertical relationship that we have, right? So all of the ones we're looking at today are less about how we amongst ourselves relate, but they're primarily about how we relate to God in a vertical way. And then the next week, we're going to finish up by looking at the last four, and those deal with the horizontal. Um, and it would make sense that that's the order that they would go in because vertical is more important. It comes first. And generally, if our relationship vertically is doing well, it affects positively the way that we relate with one another, right? The more you grow and mature as a Christian, the closer you feel to God and, and you're walking with him and you dig into his word, the more it affects the relationships that we have, the way we treat one another, talk to one another, think about one another, talk about other people to other people and those kinds of things. And so vertical today, horizontal next week. So this morning, let's start by standing together and, and looking through God's word in Matthew 5, 1 through 12 uh, again. Uh, we'll read the whole thing, even though we're only going to cover half of it today, because it's just always good to read God's word. And if you're new and you wonder, why do we stand up? We're not Catholic. We just like to stand as a kind of a reverence to the word of God, as opposed to the things that I say to you. We want to be able to say God's word is supreme, and so we stand as kind of a reverence piece for that. 
Let's read together. Matthew 5, 11, or 12, or 1 through 12. Sorry. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So we, um, one of the things to clear up, uh, if it's helpful to you, we, we actually, I had two people, I, I won't name you, after church last week, come to me and said, you know, you, your counting is really awful because there's actually nine Beatitudes. Uh, and just so we're clear, um, verse 11 is not one of the Beatitudes. It's kind of a, a summation of things, so to say, right? And so when you look at this, there isn't nine, there's eight. Uh, it just looks like the blessed language kind of continues. And so it looks like there are nine Beatitudes, but there are in fact eight uh, verse 10 is the final one of them. And then we have this 11 and 12 kind of bring it back summation. Um, and it kind of talks about how um, when you do these things, you know, you'll be reviled how Jesus was or is going to be reviled based on uh, when the sermon was preached. And so that's kind of how we, how we dissect that verse. So if you're wondering, there are not nine. Uh, your pastor is somewhat okay at math for the most part. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm great, but I'm acceptable, right? So the first one we see here from the very beginning is blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And we know that, that blessed means approval, so we, we, we kind of translate this as a, approved by God are those who are poor in spirit. So if you are someone who is poor in spirit, that's something that God looks at with, with a great deal of approval. That's a desirous thing. And so the, the question becomes, well, what does poor in spirit actually mean? Right? And so we need to understand kind of in, in a detailed way what that's actually talking about. And so first, it does not mean anything related to actual wealth or poverty. Right? This isn't about, you know, cursed are the rich, blessed are the poor. Uh, this has nothing to do with your financial status. This isn't related to how much you have in your 401k. This isn't related to how your budget looks or how you spend. Although, I will say, if you understand poverty in spirit, it probably will somewhat come to side tangent affect the way you spend and think about money, right? But it has nothing to do with your wealth. Being poor in spirit, second, has nothing to do with any kind of demand to act humble, right? It's not blessed are the humble, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. This is not a, a call to some kind of self-demeaning attitude, right? Whenever someone compliments you, maybe you, maybe you sing in worship, or maybe when I get off stage, imagine if every time you were like, you know, great, great sermon, Pastor Vince. And I was like, nah, that's terrible, I'm nothing, right? You might think of that as humble, but that's not what poor in, in spirit means. So what does it mean? 
The, the, the root word that we have here, when we look at the Greek for poor in, in Matthew 5, we come up with this word patokos. And patokos, the root of it, denotes this idea of cowering or cringing like a beggar. All right. So, blessed are those who cower and cringe like a beggar in the spirit. Right. It's this, this begging mentality is a really, really big part of it. And so, blessed are those who take the posture of a desperate beggar. Anybody here feel like a desperate beggar today? And so then we think, well, so all the people that we drive by on the highways that are collecting stuff, that you have a veteran, whatever, are those all blessed by by God? Well, no, it doesn't say blessed are the poor, right? Patokos. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. And so when we put all of this together, what we come up with is blessed are those who understand their full spiritual dependence on the Lord for absolutely everything, right? Jesus is saying that God approves those who come to him with an utterly desperate spirit. They know that they are absolutely screwed without God's intervening love, care, and help for every aspect of their life. They have nothing to offer spiritually. And those who have nothing, the only resort that they have, if they can't get it on their own in any way, is to sit and to beg. And so that's why he uses that word. That's why the Greek uses patokos, because it wants us to understand that we approach God with almost a begging mentality. You don't have the capacity to earn the wages yourself. Your only recourse is to cower and beg and hope that God gives you something. Otherwise, you don't have anything. So it's literally a blessed are the spiritual beggars in desperation. When it says blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's the promise? Well, the promise is, well, the kingdom of heaven is for those kinds of people. The kingdom of heaven is for those who say, I am desperate, I am needy, I don't bring anything to the table, I am utterly, completely dependent on the Lord to move in me and to to take over my being and to grant me whatever kind of favor and, and blessing and salvation and ability to do good that I have. It's not a, I am an awful person, it's a, I am an, I am awfully needy. I need Most of us don't live our daily lives as if we really need anything. And why? Because we have all the creature comforts, right? Our entire lives are geared to teach us not to rely on anyone else for anything. If you're hungry, you go to the store or the restaurant. If you're sick, you go see the doctor. You you go and you take care of business. It's commended in our culture today. This idea of of purposely understanding ourselves as desperate, to to fully grasp the weight of our own sin and mess is not something that we are culturally taught uh, kind of in an everyday way. It goes against the grain of of how we're we're raised and how the world perceives things around us. And so it, it takes a lot of training of the mind. It takes a lot of prayer and careful thought to start to put ourselves in a place where we say, yeah, I, I'm going to operate as poor in spirit. When I get up in the morning, I'm going to understand that I don't earn any of this, that I've got nothing to bring to the table. There's no spiritual wealth that I somehow offer. As your pastor, there's no spiritual wealth that I offer you as, as Pastor Vince. It's, it's all of what the Lord does or doesn't do, how the Lord moves or doesn't move. 
That doesn't mean that I walk around belittling myself, but the strength that I exude comes from him, not from me. That's how we, we operate, right? It's a matter of where does the credit go for who God makes us to be and how he gifts us and what he gives us and doesn't give us and where he puts us and doesn't put us and where he calls us to, to speak or not speak. All those things come from him. Any, anything we have in terms of salvation or credits is entirely gifted, not earned. We are poor in spirit. The second, uh, to me at least, I think, we could argue about this, the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is probably the most misunderstood of all eight of them. Um, we, we typically associate this with blessed are those who are in mourning. Right? Blessed are those who are, are struggling through life, who are grieving loss or health issues or whatever, job losses or strife in their households or whatever, whatever grief befalls you, however small or large, when you mourn that grief, when that grief makes you sad, there's people that go, well, blessed are the sad, for they will be comforted. That's the most kind of popular take on this verse. I think it's the wrong take, and I think it's the wrong take for, for a reason. All the actions that the Lord commands to us in, in the Beatitudes are things that are positive things, right? Like, if you, if you operate as a Christian, it's a good thing to be meek. We'll talk about what meek means in a second. It's a good thing to be poor in spirit. Is it a good thing to mourn? Like, hey, if you're sad because of grief, that's great. Bless you. I approve of that sadness. It's not bad to be sad. It's not sinful to be sad. It's, you know, it's a healthy thing. It's a part of the process of who we are as humans. But I'm not sure that it's a thing that we seek after. Like, who here is like, you know, like most of us understand, I really need to work on being more meek. Anybody here go home and say, I really need to work on being more sad? No, right? And so mourning in the context of this passage is actually not about our sorrows and sadnesses in this life and the things that bother us. If you've experienced loss recently and you're in mourning, right, there are plenty of passages of Scripture that talk about how the Lord intentionally comforts those who are mourning, who are, who are sad and distraught with the things that life throws at us. The Lord is present for us. Right? We just don't get that from this particular passage. Right? And so what, what is it actually talking about? Right? If mourning is so good and healthy, why, why, why does it... Why is it commended as a thing? It just doesn't make any sense. Rather, we are to understand blessed are the mourning in relation to the first beatitude of the poverty in spirit. The best example um, that I have as I was reading some stuff to prepare for this week came from a commentary that told the, the story of Auschwitz survivor Yehiel de Noor. You don't know his name and that's okay. Yehiel de Noor was one of the, the witnesses at the Nuremberg trial. Uh, if you recall, in the, in the 60s, they had the Nuremberg trial, and one of the, gen one of the people that was on trial was a, name, a guy named Adolf Eichmann. Uh, he was uh, a person that operated a whole bunch of the death camps. He's responsible for having killed millions of the Jews that were killed. And while he's on trial, one of the things that happened is, is Yehiel was in the courtroom as, as a witness, and the moment the, the, the thing began, you know, they bring Eichmann out, and the moment he entered the room, uh, he starts to wail. Denur starts to wail. In agony. And they think, like, is it, a, is it a reminder? Is it kind of some post-traumatic stress type of thing? Why is, he, why is he losing his mind as soon as the person walks in? Is it a, I've watched this person inflict so much pain? And, and when they interviewed him later, 
one of the things that came out is, no, what he, what he did is the moment Eichmann walked into the courtroom, he saw him and said, he's just a man. Like, Eichmann to people, to the Jews, was this larger-than-life, awful demonic figure that, that was almost beyond human, so evil. And, and when he was in the courtroom, he saw him as just, he's like, this is just a guy. And, and he came to the realization that every person, including himself, under the right circumstances, would be capable of the kind of evil that Eichmann had inflicted on him and others. And it brought him to tears. And he's quoted later in a, in a 60-minute interview as saying the phrase, you know, there's a little bit of Eichmann in every one of us, and we don't even know it. And it caused him to wail in mourning at the understanding of, man, if it had been a different world, that easily could have been me inflicting that kind of evil on others. First off, what a mature way to think about things. Right? I, probably, I don't know that I would have had the, the mind or the foresight to think that way as, as a witness at the Nuremberg trials, but he did. But here's one of the things it brings to the forefront when we think about mourning. What Denur was mourning was his own capacity for evil and wretchedness, a.k.a. what he was mourning was his own sin. He was mourning his poverty in spirit. And that's what this beatitude is blessing when the Lord says, blessed are those who mourn. He says, look, the first thing to understand as these beatitudes build on each other is that you are poor in spirit. You bring nothing to the table. Blessed are those who understand and get that in their heads. Right? It's a head thing. The first one is an intellectual kind of beatitude. Those intellectual understanding of I am nothing, you are everything, I need you, I'm dependent on you. The second beatitude is the emotional subset of that. It's the response to say, look, if I'm so wretched, man, that just that, that wells up inside of me a level of mourning. I, I can't, like we, we mourn the sinful part of us. We hate it. Right? When you actually start to realize how sinful you are apart from the grace of Christ, it ought to cause a deep mourning in your soul that only the Lord can quench. And the beauty is the second beatitude is blessed are those who go through that mourning, who understand themselves so clearly that it causes grief. And then it says, for they I will comfort. Right? The promise is the people who mourn righteously, who understand who they are, who confront their own sin and it brings them to tears, the Lord says, I am here to not only give you the richness in spirit that you can't get, but to comfort you as you mourn your own lack of it. So blessed are those who mourn their own sin and state of just completely being destitute. That's number two. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a, a tough one to get behind because I, I honestly, I think maybe it's probably the least true beatitude in the world today. Because I, I don't know about you, it doesn't seem like we live in a world where the meek inherit the earth. It seems like what we look for is those who are bullish and strong and powerful, brazen, tough, all kinds of languages that don't seem to line up with meekness, per se, right? And so this is one of those things that is true more in the kingdom of heaven than in the kingdom of earth. Right now we live in a world where meekness probably won't get you an inheritance of the earth. But the Lord is bringing a kingdom where it does. So then what does meekness actually mean? Well, well, Jesus loves to operate in what we call paradox, 
right? If you look through Scripture in Jesus' ministry, most of the times that Jesus interacts with people, he drops these kind of paradox truth bombs that make everybody, you know, go, what? Right? So the people that are last are first, right? The people who are poor or rich, the people who are blind can see. Do you see, like, all the time, there's hundreds. He just gives these paradoxical statements. He says, look, in the kingdom of heaven, everything is flipped upside down from the way it is here, right? And so in the kingdom of heaven, meekness, that makes very little sense in our world, is what actually gets an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. So in Jesus' kingdom, what does meekness actually mean? It's not an everyday word we use. How many of you have used meek as a word in the last week in your vocabulary of just talking every day? We We don't really use it, but it's something that we have to define. Meek, number one, does not mean weak. You can go read about meekness, and virtually every article, commentary you'll stumble upon will have some kind of clever, like, meekness is not weakness kind of, kind of thing back and forth. To be meek is not to be a person that exudes weakness. Right? If you think of Jesus, did Jesus seem weak to you? No, Jesus was bold. He spoke boldly. He had this ability to be meek, but bold. They are not mutually exclusive. To be a meek person does not mean to be a weak person person, a cowardly person, right? Meekness also is not low self-confidence. To be a meek person doesn't mean you always have to be self-loathing when you go about your day and your business. It's not the person who's like, you know, that was great. You sang so great. No, I didn't. No, I did No, that's not meek, right? It's kind of a false humility, if anything, but it's not meekness. And finally, meekness is not shyness. A lot of times in the church, we have people that just naturally their demeanor is to be kind of quieter. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're shy, right? And we say, well, you know, those are just, they're just meek people. No. To be quiet and shy has nothing to do with meekness at all, right? William uh, Barclay has this phrase that says, meekness is like a word with a caress in it. Other people call it gentle. Right? There are certain translations that you get into the like, paraphrases of Scripture that will say something like, blessed are mild men. Right? It doesn't say that they're cowards or, or pansies or non-authoritative or anything like that, but there's a mildness to us. And then a little later in his commentary, Barclay offers an even better definition. He classifies meekness as strength under control. To be meek means to be strong, but to have a control over that strength. And you'll see that the the beatitude builds again on the other two. If you understand your own spiritual poverty, and if you properly mourn that poverty of sin in your life, and you feel the comfort of the Lord, it'll change the way that you approach the world. You won't come in bullish. You'll come in with a little bit of a, a reserved nature, a little bit of a, let me pause and let me listen before I speak. Let me hear what others have to say before I assert my own confident statement or answer or solution to the, to the problem. The way you kind of go about things, if you deliver bad news, you do it well, right? The people that we think of as meek have a significant amount of self-control and winsomeness in their life. One of the best examples that we see of meekness, if you want to kind of learn how do I be a meek person, is you read the scriptures, the accounts of Jesus during his arrest and his trial. Because what you see is a, as a person who stands on the other side of, 
of, of Easter, right? You can see Jesus going through the trial and you realize <clears throat> he's being beaten, he's being mocked, he's being made fun of, he's being called out by the leaders, he's being questioned in ways that don't make sense. <clears throat> but he's always in control. Do you ever get the sense, looking back, that Jesus didn't know exactly what he was doing, exactly what he was saying? Like, How many of you look at the, the interaction of Jesus with Pontius Pilate and you go, why didn't you just speak up? <clears throat> Why didn't you explain what kind of king you were? Why didn't you come out swinging and assert your authority? And Jesus' reply was, I don't have to. Strength under control. Right? Pilate has no idea what to do with Jesus when he encounters him. Because Pilate has strength and authority, but it's not under control. Jesus has all the strength and all the power and all the authority, but he's, he's controlling of how he uses it. His anger doesn't get the best of him. right? And when he speaks, one of the best ways you can see a meek person is when you speak to somebody, are they always right or are they always winsome? Right? You might know you're right, but if you're not winsome, who cares? You can go to your circle of friends and talk about how right you are, or you can go on the internet and troll people about how right you are. No one cares. I don't care how smart or right you are. If you're not winsome, no one's going to listen to you. Right? Meekness says, look, I understand the strength, the God-given strength that I have. The Lord has called me to, to certain ministries. He's called me to be an authoritative presence in places. Maybe he called you to be an, to be an elder in this church or whatever. You're called into these leadership things, but you understand that it's his strength, not yours. And so you're, you're able sometimes to just sit back and, and think before you act, to control the strength and the impulses that you have. One of the greatest characters that I always look for for people when you think about leadership is prudence. Like you might be right all the time, but do you have the prudence to know how to use that rightness as you go about your day? Right? Are you meek? So blessed are the meek. And finally, in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise that we get is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be found to be satisfied. Right? If you are a person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the promise that God gives you is if that's you, you will find satisfaction as you go through that hunger and that thirst. You will have your hunger, your, your mouth fed and your thirst quenched as you seek the righteousness. So the, 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 there's two kinds of righteousness that we can pursue, right? The first is self-righteousness. You can live by the letter of God's law and you can take pride in it and you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and you can try to seek to do everything the Lord is calling you to do and you can feel great about your, your perfect tithing and your great church attendance and all the Bible studies that you lead and the, the fact that you have been on session for somehow 30 years now off and on because they keep calling you back because of how great of a leader you are. You can have all of those mentalities and self-righteousness, but self-righteousness destroys the law cannot be kept. The whole point of the law is to show us that we fail to live up to it. Right? And so instead, God blesses those who pursue a different kind of righteousness, meaning his own righteousness. So if we are poor in spirit, a.k.a. destitute, and we're de dependent on the Lord for everything, if we mourn our own sin and we allow it to create this reserved strength that's not our own, then naturally, what we start to yearn for is his strength, right? If you're a desperate, poor-in-spirit beggar who's in mourning about your own affairs, you realize you need God 
what are you going to want a lot of? God. Right? You become a person who just hungers. That means when you go home, you are not satisfied with where you are in life, in your spiritual life. You're never, you're never content. You're always looking to grow. You're, you're the first person to, to run into all the Bible studies, not because it makes you somehow a better person, but because you just want to learn as much and as, 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 as deeply as about the Lord as you can. You want to soak up every page. You, you, you stay up at, late at night reading Scripture because it just you can't put it down like a good book at the fire that you just can't set down because it's just compelling. You are never satisfied. You have a deep hunger and a desire for the righteousness of God to manifest itself deeper and deeper every day in your life. Right? And if that's your mentality and your attitude, the Lord says, blessed are you. Man, I approve of that. And by the way, you're going to find the satisfaction you're looking for if you seek after me with your whole heart. Because that's the kind of God that I am. We know that whatever we need, we don't have. And so we hope and plead for him to work and to grow us, to make our hearts more and more amenable. And so we see how these four initial Beatitudes kind of build upon one another. And as we go into the next week, we're going to see them continue to do so. Right? The Lord wants to start us with the understanding of our identity and building block us up into the vertical relationship to where we're seeking him and his righteousness the way that we ought to. And then as we move in the next week, he'll start to tell us now, how does that blessing manifest itself as we interact with other people around us? Right? Do we have a mercy that we show, and so forth. Right? But that's next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you, I mean, you give us the field manual for how to walk with you. We thank you for your word that uh, parts of it are just so confusing and it feels like no commentary in the world can help, but then there's, there's parts like this where you just give us a clear picture you say, look, this is what life as a Christian looks like. This is what I bless, and this is what I curse, and this is what I want, and this is what I don't. And if you, if you want to pursue after me as your God and your Lord, and this is what you do. We thank you in all of the world where clarity is lacking. Lord, we thank you for when you provide clarity. For the times where we can just open your word and, and do what it says. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, the hard part is understanding that you would move next into the harder part of actually shaping our hearts and minds. That we would be a people who are poor in spirit. That we would be a people who mourn our own sin. That, that would cause us to operate in a meek way as we relate to you. And Lord, that, that all of that poverty and that mourning and that meekness would cause us just to hunger and thirst after the righteousness that you provide to us. That is so much better than anything that we could ask or imagine. We pray that you would shape us. We pray that you would ingrain this truth in our hearts so that when we gather again and learn about how to relate to one another through the Beatitudes, numbers 5, 6, 7, and 8, that you might prime us and prepare us to be back next week and to hear the next thing. We pray that you are a God who shapes us. And we pray that we might be shaped by you this week. We pray that you would cut us to the heart in the areas that you need to. Whichever one of these beatitudes, depending on who we are, is a greater struggle. We pray that your spirit would abound and shape us and mold us and teach us lovingly and caringly so that you might shape us into the people that you're calling us to be. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen.